for a scripture reading this morning. We turn to the epistle of Paul to the Colossians, and we will read chapter 1. You perhaps will notice as we read how closely Colossians 1 is to Ephesians 1, that it sets forth many of the same basic and summary truths of the Christian faith. Colossians 1, however, focuses especially on the primacy or preeminence of Christ. You may look for that as we read Colossians 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ which are at Colossae. Grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which ye have to all the saints for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you as it is in all the world and bringeth forth fruit as it doth also in you since the day ye heard of it and knew the grace of God in truth. As ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created, that are in heaven and that are in earth." visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And, having made peace through the blood of his cross, 
by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unprovable in his sight. If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the affliction of Christ in my flesh, for his body's sake, which is the church, whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. We read that far in God's Word. This morning we consider Lord's Day 1 of the Heidelberg Catechism. What is thy only comfort in life and death? That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood hath fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father not a hair can fall from my head, yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore by his Holy Spirit he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. How many things are necessary for thee to know that thou, enjoying this comfort, mayest live and die happily? 3. The first, how great my sins and miseries are. The second, how I may be delivered from all my sins and miseries. The third, how I shall express my gratitude to God for such deliverance. Beloved people of God, beloved of God, you all know that this Lord's Day sets forth the theme of the entire Heidelberg Catechism that it sets forth that theme as comfort. 
And therefore, the Heidelberg Catechism is a something that looks at all of the truth concerning us and our God and our salvation from the viewpoint of ourselves. It looks at all the various truths of Holy Scripture concerning God, ourselves, and our salvation from the perspective of how they are comfort to us, how they are felt, how they are experienced. It deals with them practically. That is how they impact our life. And you all know that this knowledge, because it speaks about what we know, is in three parts. And those are found in question and answer two. Notice first the emphasis again on this comfort, and that this comfort has to do with both living and dying happily. That is, with a certain joy and delight, a feeling of comfort. According to our experience and what we know, not simply intellectually, but in the depths of our being. And that that knowledge has to do with the three main parts of the Heidelberg Catechism. Knowing, in a very real and experiential way, our sins and miseries, that from which we have misery and because of which we need comfort. And then, the knowledge of how we are delivered from all that misery, that too brings us comfort. And then, this comfort that allows us to live and die happily also has to do with knowing how we shall express that is, how we do express our gratitude to God for that which we confess earlier. That's the theme and the breakdown of the catechism that you all know well. This morning we're going to look at this Lord's Day, however, from the perspective that it is a confession. It is indeed a confession of faith. This is something obvious, in fact so obvious that we often overlook it. We overlook the fact that this is the theme of the Heidelberg Catechism, which is itself a confession of faith. It's not merely an instruction manual, it's not merely a system or systematic instruction of doctrine. It doesn't set forth what we ought to believe and hope to believe, but it is a confession of faith. That is, a confession of everyone who has faith. And this is its theme. This should be obvious also 
from the very statement itself. It asks a question about ourselves, and we answer with regard to ourselves. And that answer is not the answer of others. It's not the answer of the church as such. It's not the answer of Trinity Protestant Reformed Church. It's not the answer of the PRCA. It's your answer. You who have faith. You who by that faith have a confession to make. And this is your confession, and this is my confession. And the confession that we make as believers, that is, those who have faith. But also it should be impressed upon us this morning that this is the confession of every single believer. This is not the confession of some extraordinary supernatural faith that one finds only in an individual here or there, often rare in the church. This is not the confession of faith that we hope to make sometime when we arrive at some point in sanctification, but it is the confession that every single believer makes. Anyone who has been given true and living faith, and by that faith is joined and united to Jesus Christ, that faith, whether it be the faith of a young child, or whether it be the faith of an elderly individual, will, in one way or another, make this confession. It is, therefore, a model confession. That should be noted because it is in this way very much like the Lord's Prayer and the Law of God. We examined recently those two statements from the Word of God, God's Law and the prayer that Jesus teaches us to pray. And we learned much from those statements. We learned much. We were taught much, and therefore by them we confessed much. And this confession also may be viewed that way. In fact, one may see that the rest of the entire catechism is basically an explanation of what we have here in the first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism. So consider with me this morning, this Lord's Day, and we're going to do so under the theme, the confident confession of every believer, the confident confession of every believer, and we notice two points, simply that this confident confession of every believer concerns his Lord, so about his Lord, and then secondly, about her life. First, what it confesses about his Lord. The confession here is a personal confession. It is a confession made by an individual. 
And it is a confession that is about one's self. It is a confession about what I believe and what you believe. And what you and I believe, we state in this confession, has something to do with ourselves, the hairs on our own head. And it has something to do with our relationship to another. It has to do with us. That all by itself is significant. Especially when we note that this is a confession of faith. Now, all forms of faith, and here I want to acknowledge that we use that word faith broadly, even those who do not have true faith can be said to have a certain form of faith. The Bible itself uses that term and applies it to those who are really unbelievers. That is, they don't have true and living faith. And that's because faith at its essence, a faith used very broadly is simply to know and trust. To know and trust in something. The key is that it's what one knows and trusts with regard to oneself and what one knows and trusts in with regard to another and that other's relationship to oneself. So one may be said to have faith in many, many different things. The difference between all these other forms of faith, false faith, forms of knowledge and trust in others with regard to oneself are all exposed for what they are because true and living faith only has one object. One thing that it knows and trusts in. That is, knows and trusts in something else for one's benefit, one's blessedness, and with regard to one's own present state of being. And that is the true and living God of Jesus Christ. When we look at that faith, faith is always personal. That must be seen from this confession of faith. This is not a confession of faith about what your church believes. It's not a confession of faith about what the Protestant Reformed churches believe. It's not a confession of faith about what the others gathered here than yourself believe. It's not a confession about what Christians believe, although these things may be true, that other members of this church and others in the Protestant Reformed churches, and others whom you know as family and friends, also confess with you this very same thing. We must see this morning that a confession of faith is a confession from oneself and about oneself. It's about me 
It's about what I believe. It's not about what others believe. It's not about others' relationship to God, even the one true God. It's not even a, re- it's not even a confession that God himself, as it were, makes instead of you. Oh, indeed, it's a confession that God produces and God works in you. But faith is personal. That is, there's an individual person, an I, who makes this confession, who speaks it, who truly believes it, who knows and trusts what it's saying is true with regard to one's own self. Second, faith is always about God. To put it more succinctly, faith always has as its proper object God. Not any God, not any who confess to be God, not even any whom others rely upon as God, but faith always has one object, the one true and living God revealed in the Holy Scriptures and revealed through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is because of the character of faith. In fact, both of these things have to do with the character of faith. Faith is a bond that unites you. In fact, unites you as a person. Unites you as a person in your heart to God. And therefore, faith must have as its subject you. An I that says, I believe. I confess this about my comfort and about my life and about my soul and about my body. It has a subject. I, you. Confessions about others may be about what you believe concerning others, but it's not faith as such. And faith always has an object, that which it knows and that in which it trusts with absolute certainty. And that object is always God with which we are united by that faith. There's the mechanics of it. There's the explanation for this. And therefore, if in fact this Lord's Day, this question and answer is a confession of faith. And indeed, as the church has recognized time and time again, and we ourselves know that this is a model confession. This is a faithful confession of the summary of what faith ought to believe. And faith does believe to one's salvation that one actually, truly derives real comfort in this confession and expresses it. We point this out because, number one, it emphasizes that this is your confession if you have faith. And if you have faith, this will be your confession. If you find you cannot 
make this your confession. If this is not your confession, then you do not have true faith or in the least are not living by that faith. Your faith has been covered and buried somehow. So it's important to recognize this morning not only what every believer confesses positively, but what it confesses my comfort is not. In other words, what we don't confess. And this is brought out by the catechism itself. Notice the confession does not come simply in a positive form. What is your only comfort in life and death that I belong to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ? That's not the confession. The confession is that I do not belong to myself. The confession is I am not my own. Now we could briefly spend some time simply explaining that, but you must recognize what that is saying. It's also saying that I do not belong to anyone else, including myself, but also that there is no other about which I can say what I'm about to say. And we must compare this to the attitude and confession that we make according to our nature. That which we often might assume is faith or quite natural, but is completely antithetical to the confession here. You see, if you confess that my comfort is that I am not my own, that means a lot. Basically, it means you don't belong to anyone, and I suppose that could be interpreted this way, that I'm a free person. That I'm a free person to do whatever I want. I'm free to worship God however I want. I'm free to worship God however I think is best. I'm free to think that this and that is what God ought to find acceptable, that I'm saved from this or that in this particular way. But when you're saying, my comfort is that I am not my own, that is a rejection of yourself in a very real way. That's remarkable and ironic. One might say even contradictory. Because it is, after all, the I that is making this confession. I and you are making this confession by faith. And the very first thing that you confess is that your I, I, me, you, do not belong to ourselves. I am not, to put it this way, the Lord, Master, and King of all that I am. I am not the Lord and Master and King of my body or of my soul or of my life or of my time. I am not Lord and Master of my home and my house and my property and my car and my money. Faith does not 
confess that. And when we find that in our heart and soul, understand it's antithetical to faith. It leads you away from God. It's something else trying to grab your attention and peel to that natural Lord and Master in your life, your I, your me. And this confession of the believer is this. That as long as I think, as long as I believe, as long as I confess that I am my own, that my life is mine, my house is mine, my wife is mine, my children is mine, my church is mine, my minister is mine, doesn't matter what it is, you and I will have no comfort. Oh, you may have what you think is comfort. You may have what you think is comfort, but it will be fleeting. If indeed you are a child of God, you may and will expect that God at some point is going to expose that little God and Lord that's in your own heart, namely your own self, that is the essential problem, that is the essential misery, the essential sin of all of us, that we are our own. Think about that. If you don't even own your own person, your I, so that when that I speaks, it can only speak as a subject to another, another who owns that I, you are an idolater, and you essentially worship yourself. And there's nothing to be received that way. None of the things in the rest of this confession then apply. When we make this confession, therefore, we're saying that I do not know and I do not trust I do not know and trust to provide for me relief from misery. Relief from the misery of life and of death in anything other than the real Lord and Master of me, the one who owns me. We're saying, then, my comfort in life and in death is not anything but the one true God through Jesus Christ. This is exclusive. The believer, every believer confesses, I do not find comfort for my body and soul. I do not find comfort in life and death in my property in my money in my job. And because we are such natural idolaters, we must add all kinds of other things that often fool us into thinking they are that which bring our comfort in life and death. Your children? Your spouse? You're saying, my only comfort in life and death is not my children. It's not the spouse whom I love so much. 
My comfort in life and death is not that I am a member of Trinity Protestant Reformed Church or the Protestant Reformed Churches. My comfort is not that my grandfather was a Christian and a Reformed Christian. My comfort is not that I know the truth of the Word of God. I've been taught, and I know it to be true, all the things that are found in this Heidelberg Catechism. My comfort in life and death is not that I've been baptized, that I'm able to be a member here in good standing. My comfort in life and death is not that I have a faithful minister who is minister of my church or that our churches are so great and wonderful. My comfort is not anything, not one single thing other than the one who owns me and everything that I mentioned. Does that mean that there's no comfort at all in those other things? The answer is, of course not. But there is no comfort in them whatsoever if they own you. If they are your God, the one that you trust in to bring joy and happiness. And we must understand that this confession says, therefore, this. If I make them that, which is so easy to do, God is good to us, and God has given us faithfulness in doctrine and in truth. Faithfulness as churches. He's given us lovely children, wonderful spouses, and there is joy in that. But then we trust in them to be our joy. It happens so easily, and so easily are we blinded to it that our God who owns us, we confess, will expose that sometime by taking them away, by losing them, by exposing to us the faults and the weaknesses, the inability of those things, even our family or our church, to do what is found here, and therefore they cannot bring that comfort. I've said before, and it's from the Word of God. This is why God often brings us into crisis. This is why God often does what He does to our health and in our family or in the church. This is why God does what He does. He confronts us with our own faith and what we believe in our heart and exposes how often our real confession is, well, I say this, but my real comfort in life and death are those things. And then God, for example, confronts us with death. And you find out how much, no matter how much you love and how much enjoyment is derived from family and friends and property and all these things, they will not and cannot save you. They are powerless. In fact, the great God, the me, myself, and I, that I lift up, you see how powerless it is before our real misery in life and death. This is what faith confesses. Now, about the object. The object is the one true God in Jesus Christ. In fact, it's striking here 
that this confession is exclusively about Jesus Christ. Oh, it doesn't leave out the Heavenly Father. It does not leave out the Holy Spirit. The one true God is the God of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But notice the confession centers on Jesus Christ. It is not the confession that body and soul, life and death, I belong to God. Even God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But I believe that I belong to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ, that is the Son of God in our flesh. That is significant and important. It's not that faith says the others are not my God. No, faith understands God is triune. God is a God of three persons and all three are God. Not three gods, but there is one God consisting of those three persons. And yet the focus is on our Lord Jesus Christ. Why is that? Because He's more important? Because He's more significant? The answer is no, of course not. What it's showing is the real theological and practical truth that our only connection to God, our relationship to Him, to be more specific, how we know Him, how we relate to Him, how we love Him, how we serve Him, how we are bought by Him, is only through Jesus Christ. I said theologically that's important. He's the mediator. He's the one who God gave and sent to deliver us from our misery. He's the actual one who works this and does this. That's brought out. When it says we belong and we become the children of God by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Notice that God Himself does not have blood. God, strictly speaking, is spirit, does not have blood. That points us to the importance that real, true faith believes in the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is man and God. And that's our only connection to God. That's practically important because where that is forgotten, where that is set aside, where that is pushed to the side, which is easy to happen, we will soon find another another mediator. You see, being who we are and God being who He is, we need a medium, as it were, an interface, some place where we connect to God And that cannot be done directly. Where that is done directly, where man attempts to do that directly, perhaps in his pride and idolatry, he is doomed to failure. Man, being who he is and God being who he is, cannot know God, cannot understand God, cannot relate to God, cannot even love God, except through Jesus Christ. And where that is not done, where even in our own mind and heart that is not done, we will soon replace Jesus Christ with an idol. It may be the Virgin Mary. It may be saints or other creatures. It will be something. It might be the minister. It might be the elders. It might be the church itself. Many, many people 
have not the relationship with God that is confessed here, even though it might come across their lips, even though they might know it intellectually in their mind. They cannot and do not confess this in their heart. And the basic problem is because they do not approach, they do not come near, and they do not come to God through Jesus and only Jesus. It's absolutely central and essential to faith. Faith recognizes that. Faith confesses, therefore, that Jesus is my Lord in a very special way. We may summarize that way as grace. Jesus, of course, is Lord over all. Jesus, of course, is Lord and King of the entire universe. Those beasts that have no direct relationship to God in their heart by faith, or those beasts who are ungodly and wicked, But this confesses, He's my Lord by grace. He's the one who bought me. He paid a price. The price was His death. The currency was His blood. And by that, He bought me, purchased me from another who owned me, who had mastery and lordship over me. And that makes clear Two things that's going to be explained in the Catechism about a relationship. One, it is by faith. There's the connection. There's the instrument of connection. It's a faith that works by love. That is, a faith that expresses that relationship in love. God loves us. We receive that love through faith. And in return, we love God. It's a relationship of love. It's by faith and of love. That's what it consists of. Anyone who says they believe in Jesus Christ or God through Jesus Christ but does not love Him is a liar. And you cannot love God in Jesus Christ without having faith. It must be received and it must be expressed by faith. But that's not the end of it. It is a relationship of love in which we are servants. One in which we are underneath the authority and power of this Lord and Master. And one whom we believe we are under in a state of grace. That is, He is over us and rules over us because He has a favorable attitude and He loves us and nevertheless has the right to tell us what to do. Free and yet bound. That's what faith confesses about its relationship. It's never absolute freedom. That I've been saved in such a way that I can do whatever I want. No, that's to make yourself Lord again. It's that I serve Him. But yet, I don't serve Him merely as a debt. Simply as a servant. But as one who is owned as a friend. One who serves his eldest brother. Or as a wife serves her husband, as we're going to see tonight. And so this confession has a lot to say about that relationship. I call that life. What faith confesses about her life. Because not just men, but women make this confession. You see, 
What faith confesses here isn't simply about God, about one's God, about one one trusts to deliver from its misery, but about that life itself. It's a life. And it's a life because the God who owns us is the living God, and this living God delivers us from death such that we are given life. Notice that. What's found in this confession has first to do with what our misery is all about. It's a misery that affects our life. And it affects our life because it's about sin. That's our essential misery. When we make this confession about all sorts of other things, the problem is we don't see what our real misery is. We think our misery is that we have this or that disease. Our real misery is we don't have enough money. Our house isn't big enough. We could use a better car, more lovely children, and a better spouse. No. Your misery, my misery, and all the misery that is confessed by the believer here is my misery is sin. My sin and the sin all around me. And because sin, it's also death. That's my misery. And so faith says, I have no comfort in anybody in anything that can't solve those two problems. That's my life. That's my life before Christ. And that's my concern when Christ owns me and has bought me. My sin. And the death that results from it. And I can link every single problem I have to those two things. My life is that I'm delivered from that. The life of deliverance that I have from Christ concerns those things. And notice what the deliverance has to do with. That's mentioned by how we are delivered, by satisfaction, by satisfaction of another, by another satisfying what I cannot do. That says a lot. It's saying, therefore, that my real problem, although it concerns sin, is not those things as such. Jesus, of course, in His deliverance, will indeed deliver me and the entire universe from sin that has infected it, from wars and rumors of wars, from disease and all those things. But it begins in my heart, in your heart, and it begins with delivering us from the guilt of sin and the shame of sin, then the power of sin. It's a progression. And so if I look for a Savior and I confess that my life is one of salvation and deliverance from all sorts of other things without the cross, without the shedding of blood, then I've, again, not making this confession. So that this confession is not that Jesus is my Savior such that I won't experience poverty or disease or trouble. It's not what the believer confesses here. Oh yes, He's delivered me from all the power of the devil, Make no mistake. And yet the believer confesses that he has delivered me from that power of the devil in such a way that I will not know or experience the full blessedness of that until he comes again. I will experience that in being able to make a confession like this. I will experience that in my life, and my life will consist of knowing that I've been delivered from the power of the devil because... 
He doesn't dominate my life. I'm not under the control of these sins, the dominion of them. I notice a freedom. Oh, not such a freedom that I don't sin anymore, but such a freedom that I find real, true love in my heart for this Lord and Savior and for this God who does such wondrous things. That's my life. My life is actually my relationship to this God in Jesus Christ. Notice that also. We like to compartmentalize our life into two kinds. There's the life we have on Sunday in church for a couple of hours. And there's this life when we might think upon God, especially when we're in crisis and in trouble. And we've learned that, to a certain extent, that our gods cannot save us. But true faith says this actually is my life. My life with Jesus Christ and my relationship to Him governs everything. It's what determines what I buy and what I don't buy. Where I go and where I don't go. It's determinative in the decisions I make, in other words. It's determinative about my education and about my choice of spouse. It's determinative with regard to how I raise my children. It's not that He's Lord of my life and He owns me only at this time or that time. And in this crisis or that crisis... But the fact that I belong to my faithful Savior, who fully satisfied for all my sins, controls everything in my life so that even the hairs falling from my head and my view of that is determined by this relationship. You see, that's what faith confesses. That's what living by faith actually confesses. It's not faith, you see. When we try to make all kinds of decisions, it doesn't matter how innocuous they might seem or how trivial they might seem whether it's buying this or spending on that or going here or going there and setting aside the fact that you belong to your faithful Savior Jesus Christ and only returning to that when it's convenient that's not faith that's living by yourself that's living on your own strength and that will quickly lead to disaster or lead you away from Christ You see, that's what often happens. Many an individual, a person in the church, has had for many years another God. They heard this confession. They may have made this confession with their lips, but their real God is themselves. The real God is all around them. That's the real life that they're concerned about. And then in time of crisis, in time when they become disillusioned with that, they really should be disillusioned because they put too much faith in it. Perhaps their family, perhaps the church, perhaps the minister, perhaps name the thing. And then they're gone. They depart. They leave. Imagining, of course, that Jesus is leading them there. But the fact is it's themselves, their own I, their own I that has not trusted in Jesus Christ. This is a confession about a real life, my life, your life. And it says about that life, it is entirely controlled by the one who owns me. And I don't look at anything, nothing in my life, even something as insignificant as my hair falling out, without thinking about my Lord and Savior and His love for me and His care for me and the promises He has made The reality that He makes everything subservient 
to my salvation. Not, he makes my salvation subservient to everything else. That's what false faith does. False faith changes that. And it makes everything in salvation subservient to my life and what I want. That's backwards. That's wrong. There's this too. The confidence that in my life I am made willing and ready that is able to live unto Him. Notice that. To live unto Him. That's real life. You may think you're living your life when you're not living unto Him that is for Him. When you're making all kinds of decisions that are separate from Him and have nothing to do with Him. In fact, lead you away from Him. Lead you away in your time and in your energy and everything else. Your life is unto Him. All of it. Not one thing can be compartmentalized and separated from Him. And why mention that? Because of the reality of this confession. This is the only confession. This is the only reality. This is the only life. This is the only faith that brings comfort. Real, true comfort. Do you find that your life is hectic? Do you find your heart filled with doubts and fears and concerns? worry, anxiety, all those things that create war and turmoil in our soul and with everyone else, don't look elsewhere. Elsewhere is not the problem. Look in your own heart and soul and ask yourself, is this my confession? Not, is this what I ought to believe, this is what I hope to believe, but is this what you believe. Because the Word of God says, the Heidelberg Catechism says, this is the confession of every believer. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father which art in heaven, O Lord, we thank Thee for Thy Word, Thy Word of truth, Thy Word of grace, Thy Word which encourages and strengthens us in our Christian faith. We pray that thy name may be glorified who has bought us through our Lord Jesus Christ and that we may confess the things that we say here truly from our heart because we believe them with the faith that thou hast given us. These things we pray and for which we give thanks. Amen.